For SEN America, this is the SEN MLB Podcast. And welcome to SEN Baseball. Welcome to Xavier Player on all the buttons. How are you, mate? Good, thank you, Freddie. Yourself? Yes, pretty good. Thanks, mate. Listen, we're going to flip-flop things a little bit today just because of the logistics of the whole thing. We do have a lot of playoff baseball to talk about, but straight off the bat, we're going to Australian side of things, and more importantly, Australian schoolboys have just returned from the United States, and the head manager of that was SEN America's very own Pete Giles. Pete, are you there, mate? Thank you, Fredo. It's good to talk to you guys. Good, good. to talk. The, um, mate, you've only just returned, I believe, about a week ago now. You got back from the United States. Just as a big picture thing right off the bat, how did you find the whole experience of heading over? It was about three weeks, I think, you were over there? Yeah, well, just on four weeks, Fredo. Um, and the whole purpose of the trip was to try to give the players um, from the schoolboy tournament who were selected a taste of what it would be like to play at a at a college level in America. So we basically played 18 games over the in the four weeks. Um, they travelled probably three and a half thousand miles, stayed with host families, and and played at a range of colleges from Division One. We had uh, two games at Oregon State University and Cal State Fullerton University, and they are pristine universities. They're, you know, they, they run a program which is second to none from a facility point of view. Yes. Um, and all the way through to junior colleges all along the West Coast. So, so yeah, as an experience for the players, it was uh, second to none. You know, it shows them, you know, just how good American system is. And it, it showed up, you know, what they need to do in, in order to pursue any dreams, whether it be college or the next level above it. How many actual players did you have on the tour? So we took... 20 players, yep. um, and that was made up of the tournament which was held in May of last of this year, just gone. Yep. So they picked uh, a squad of 20, and from that, that we travelled with that group, um, and they were a phenomenal bunch of players. Um, they stayed with host families along the the way, three host families in, in in total. They were all with, and each of the host families had nothing but glowing reports um, from each of their kids. So. No, I couldn't have been prouder of all the kids who went away, great ambassadors for Australian baseball. And more importantly, the colleges that we played, every coach we got uh, to talk to the kids, and it certainly opened up doors for future players to go over there because their reputation from what they played was uh, was outstanding. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it did very well for this group of 20, but also it's going to open up doors for the kids for, for many years to come. Pete, you talk about them being a phenomenal team. Just looking for some of your on-field highlights of the trip, who were some of the boys that really stood out for you? Well, you know, we, we had um, Jack O'Loughlin, who was the 16-year-old kid who had signed pr- prior to going with Detroit Tigers. So it was, I mean, I, I'd actually coached against Jack, you know, in schoolboy form, but never coached with him. And, you know, I, I've got to take my hat off to him. And he's a kid who, you know, could have gone either way with his tour, as in his career's already been set up for the next, you know, couple of years. But he, he worked as hard as any kid on the tour. It was the kids, for me, that stood out, was the ones who were, you know, not in the upper echelon that in the Australian baseball world, but kids who were just, you know, in uh, state players or not quite state players for their respective states. We had a kid like Will Day, for example, who uh, had a, a day out against one of the colleges in America 
and that college um, offered him to go back next year and play for them. So it's those individual kids who, you know, who aren't at the at, at upper echelon, but when they did play well, they were offered uh, college opportunities for next year. And, and for me, that's that's the highlight of it, of, uh, you know, getting kids a chance that may not have had a chance previously. You talk about Will Day being offered an opportunity for next year. Can you tell us where that was? Yeah, we, we played at uh, several, I mean, obviously all along the West Coast we played. And this one was called Shemekada, a college, a junior college. Um, and he got three hits that day. And uh, the coach came up to me and said, who's the kid playing right field? Because Will's got the physique of, of, of a... Of, a, of me. Well, of me, Pete. Say me. I, I, I was going to say he's modelled himself on Fritter. So you know, that's a step in the right direction. Poor, no, poor kid. Straight into the gym. Straight in the gym. <laughs> And uh, the, the coach said, who's the kid in right field? And I said, that's Will Day. And he said, you know, what's his work habits like? And, you know, what sort of you know, personality and, and demeanour does he have? Nothing but a glowing report from the coaching staff from Australia t- about him. And coach said, you know what, that's the sort of kid I want to have play for me. So, but he was one of many kids. You know, we had uh, you know, Alex Hall, the catcher from Western Australia, and Geordie McArdle, who had a lot of interest from uh, colleges right through the tour. But, you know, the, the thing that stood out the most was whether the kid played or not, because obviously in a squad of 20, not every pitcher plays, obviously, every day. So it was never a case of I only want the kids who I saw. Nearly every coach said, you know what, the way that the, the group of 20 conducted themselves, they would take any one of those 20, whether they were on the field or not. So I think that says a lot about the kids coming through the system, that uh, they certainly are... Um, deemed appropriate for what colleges are looking for. So, I mean, hopefully, um, if the kid chooses to go down that path, then there were certainly many opportunities that they could explore for next year. Uh, you mentioned, uh, just right at the start there, you mentioned some of the complexes or slash schools and their complexes that um, that were over there in the US. Can you just sort of mention a couple of the highlights the facilities that they would have, of course, here in here in Victoria, we've got Altona, and that's our one and only. Yeah. But over there, there's there's like a new baseball ground just round the corner. Some of these schools must have some incredible complexes. Okay, so you can imagine, like, I mean, I guess, like any system, um, the, depending on the the level of college, will depend on the type type of funding that that college has. So the, the big Division One schools we played at, one was called Oregon State University, and the other one was, for example, Cal State Fullerton. So uh, as an example, Oregon State University, their football program alone generates nearly $70 million for the sports program. Wow. So from that, then they then allocate the funds back through various sports. So... So we so we played on their facility, on their baseball facility. Yeah. Now every college that's in Division One tries to gain, go get to the World's College World Series in Omaha. So they would, for example, if they're getting towards that stage where they're looking at qualifying, they would throw bullpens with a, a noise coming through the PA system yeah. to emulate sixty thousand people screaming at them. Oh wow. Their, their their weights program is is better than any facility that I've seen in any gymnasium. Yep. They work out five to six days a week. Their indoor facilities, their outdoor facilities, their their training requirements are just phenomenal. And it, and you can see why people in the states improve so much. Now the, the next level down is the junior colleges that we played at. Yeah. Junior colleges would 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 range from being a very good Division One field to 
uh, fully enclosed scoreboards, uh, electronic scoreboards, the, the works. And it was almost like as soon as you walk into a junior college, the kids felt like they... They're playing at a big stadium. Yeah. And there was never a case of, oh, we're playing at such and such stadium today. It was always excitement. The colleges did their, did everything they could to make the kids feel welcome. It was really a, a case where you couldn't help but improve um, the way they, they, they their setup is. And, and co- the coaches after each game would talk to the kids about what a daily you know, routine would be. Yep. Most times the kids are up at 6 o'clock in a gym program from 6 till 7.30. Then they'd have breakfast. Then they would be at in a, a school environment from basically nine till twelve. Yeah. And then anything from two to five or two to six, they're on the field training. And then games, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it certainly uh, it certainly promotes baseball habits. And 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 the thing that every kid uh, recognised was that as soon as a player from a college walked onto the field, everything was done at high tempo. Yeah. There was never anyone walking. There was never anyone lazing around. Everything was done as though baseball should have been played 50 years ago. And that's the thing that, to me, stood out for all our kids, was that you know the, the, the way the college system is played is the way that baseball used to be played many years ago. So, yeah, they, they took away many good habits out of it. Um, the, the, on a... If you look at the big picture that you said you took away 20 young athletes from here, player for player slash pound for pound, call it whatever you like, how do you really think we stack up against some of these US kids? You say they're on the park from, say, 6 in the morning yeah. in in the gym. Uh, they do some study, but they're back on the park in the afternoon. Yeah. We're just not afforded, afforded that sort of luxury when it comes sure. to baseball here in Australia. But pound for pound, how do you think we stack up against some of the US kids? So if I, if, if I just use this team as an example, now obviously it's made up of kids who are at the top echelon, being a Jack O'Loughlin, to kids who are just, you know, just made state programs or haven't made state programs yet. We played 18 games against the college system and we won 11, lost five and drew three. So I have no doubt that the ability is the same, or maybe not, you know, ability against our, the same age group is the same. The thing that we really lack on is just uh, looking at the tour of the last few years, the tempo that the kids play. Uh, and the American college system plays a, a team-oriented style of baseball. They don't play a pro style. They manufacture runs. They hit run a lot. They bunt a lot. So they play a manufacture right from the get-go. And then coupled with that, a weights program of six days a week we really noticed the strength levels of the kids was markedly different. If I was to take an 18-year-old kid uh, from Australia and an 18-year-old kid in a, in a college system, just the strength levels over 12 months difference is phenomenal. Now, we're looking at kids. We saw some kids, some Australian kids who had been in the college system for six months, and their strength levels in that six-month period was markedly different. So, you know, with that goes with, you know, um, you know, stamina comes up, speed comes up, and arm strength comes up, all because their physical conditioning is so much better. So no doubt skill-wise we're good, but where we lack down is that just that physical strength because, you know, at the end of the day, when you shake a kid's hand who's in a four-year college system and he's been in that system for three years, every kid notices, wow, that's, that's a, a big, strong athlete. So that, that to, to me, Frida, that's where, I mean, 
you know, we live in a country where it's hard, where we don't devote, you know, we can't devote that much time to it. But certainly that uh, if, if a kid is really serious, if they can improve strength levels and everything else will improve with them. So no doubt we can match it, uh, you know, from a skill point of view, but we just don't match it yet from a consistent day in, day out. I mean, we have, what, 30 games in a season there. They, they're having 100 plus. So yeah. you know, times that by four at bats a game. So th- that's where we just get left behind. But it's unavoidable being, in, you know, the way we have it. But yeah. But certainly, we, we start off on a, on a level playing field, and it just depends what the kids want to do to keep improving their playing field. Pete, you talk about the benefits for the players of the time spent over there. From a coaching perspective, was there anything you picked up that you can come home and use to, I guess, make yourself a better coach? You're obviously already a fantastic coach, but is there, was there anything you picked up? Yeah, I mean, the, the way, I mean, I, I try to model what I do with just from a club point of view to how college coaches go about it, you know. Everything that a college does is is based around team. Everything, if you ask a kid from a college in America, how did they go last year? They will always say, we made nationals or we made the regional playoffs or we made this. Whereas if, if I talk to a kid who's generally has come back from a pro system, it's I hit a, you know two forty or I, I had an I had an ERA of such and such. So I'm I'm a big believer in what the college what the college coaches and college system tells me is that in order to be a successful program, you've got to run a team orientated style of setup. So so I try to sort of emulate you know the best of all the, um, the skill sets that of the colleges that I've seen throughout and the coaches that I've seen throughout. Um, and is that you know you're only as good as what your bottom you know five players can allow you to be. So if I can keep improving just from you know, promoting a team style atmosphere, then I'll be a happy man. But um, you know what they do and how they how they set up training, everything's structured, everything's done at high tempo, everything's done with a purpose. Even throwing between innings, they they, they just promote. If, you, if you're going to make that throw in between innings, make the same throw as if it's the bottom of the ninth of a College World Series. Yeah. Nothing is ever done at slow tempo. So, you know, that, they're the things that, you know, you might keep trying to pick up and trying to reinforce the players that you just can't switch the tempo on and off. So whatever you do, you know, in between innings, do it uh, in, in between pitches and in between, you know, outs. So just trying to promote good habits. You know, that's what I picked up the most. Uh, look, Pete, we're going to have to leave it there, mate. Really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, some of those habits and things that you're just talking about there, I'm sure you're going to take them back to your club. I know you're on your way or you're probably at training with the Essendon Baseball Club looking for a six-time winner of the Division One Championship. Mate, really appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck for this rest of this summer season. I will say that there's been nothing but glowing reports from the playing side of things as well as the coaching side of things. Uh, Neil Barracliffe and yourself did a fantastic job on this team and hopefully we'll see more of these kids uh, going for a career in college over in the US. So really appreciate you coming on, Pete, and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Rudy. Very much appreciate you guys have been outstanding for baseball. Thanks, fellas. Good on you, Pete. Thanks, mate. See you. Cheers, Jed. Bye. Bye. And thanks to Peter Giles there, the manager of the Australian schoolboys team, just returned from the United States. Look, we're going to go to a quick break right now, but coming up after the break, we're going to speak to Alex Cohen about all the playoff news happening over in the US. So stick with us. You're on SEN Baseball.
Baseball is the largest spectator sport in the world. In 2015 alone, over 73 million people attended professional games in the United States, with 65 million people playing in over 100 countries around the world. Baseball is the world's second largest participation sport. Baseball is truly a game that everyone can enjoy. It's free to try and cheap to play, but most importantly, it's fun for all. From t-ball and little league to seniors and masters, for the young and the young at heart, Baseball is the perfect game for boys and girls and mums and dads too. With over 105 local clubs in Victoria, get started by going to www.baseballvictoria.com.au to see how you can get involved today. And welcome back to SEN Baseball. We're now going to go to the United States. Of course, it's all the playoff news is about to happen. The league championship series about to get underway tomorrow. And our man on the ground over in the U.S. part of the SEN America team is Alex Cohen. Alex, are you there, mate? Yes, I am, Fred. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problems, mate. First, before we get to all the playoff news, of course, you were the media relations manager for the Bowling Green Hot Rods this year, play-by-play broadcaster with him. How did your season go with the Bowling Green Hot Rods? It went great. Uh, it's a team that set the record for the most wins in franchise history. They also won their first playoff game in franchise history, started back in 2009. And they made a couple trips to the Midwest League playoffs in 2011, 2012, 2013. They didn't win a game. And this year they had a pair of nine-game winning streaks. They won the division in the second half, and they won their first playoff game. So overall, without any jewelry and no championship rings, it was a success. And it was a very enjoyable season. Yeah, I relish the opportunity of being able to broadcast for the high rocks. We're going to get right now to the Major League playoffs. Of course, this is the big time of year for us. The division series are done and dusted. First, the Cleveland Indians over Boston. To me, that one looked to be a, a pretty simple uh, win for Cleveland. We haven't heard a lot about Cleveland this season coming along. Of course, we're all the way over here. They really seem to be a bit of a sleeper, does the Cleveland Indians, but now into the league championship series. How do you see that uh, Cleveland team coming along this year and they're up against, uh, just refresh me. They are playing against the uh, Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS. Toronto Blue Jays. Of course, Toronto, yeah. So they seem to be a bit of a sleeper, Cleveland. How do you see that one matching up Toronto-Cleveland? You know, they're the most unheralded team in baseball all season long. People don't realize that over the last two and a half months of the season, they had the best record in the American League by far. I mean, it wasn't even a comparison. I mean, this is one of the most complete baseball teams that you'll see. They have three really good starting pitchers. Uh, They have one who won a Cy Young Award a couple of years ago, and they probably have the most balanced lineup one through nine in all of baseball, the only team that could really compare to that one through nine in the lineup with the DH is the Toronto Blue Jays with the healthy Troy Tulowitzki and obviously Edwin Encarnacion, Jose Bautista, and the reigning AL MVP Josh Donaldson. It's going to be a great series. Uh, I really think Cleveland is that team to me. Uh, sometimes, if you look at the baseball and the landscape, every playoff season, it's not the best team overall, all 162 games in the regular season that makes the World Series, it's the best team over the last half of the season that carries that momentum into the playoffs to go to the World Series. And I think Cleveland is that team. Uh, for me, I was saying on Twitter, if the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs go to the World Series, that's a remake for the Major League uh, movie trilogy right there. Yeah, yeah right there. Just, just, <laughs> yeah. just, uh, just do it. But uh, I really do think the Indians 
are that team this year. And, and it's not like they're a bunch of cast-offs going into the playoffs. They have one of the best shortstops in all of baseball in Francisco Lindor. I mean, this guy is a MVP caliber player for the next decade. As then you look at the role players, Mike Napoli having a career resurgence, Jason Kipnis, one of the better second basemen in the entire league for the last couple of years, he's finally getting his due. Uh, and then you have a lot of different role players and pitchers, Cody Allen, and their starting pitchers, Carlos Carrasco. Uh, they're very deep, and if you look at their roster, 1 through 25, there's not many glaring weaknesses there. So I think Cleveland is a good bet to go to the World Series, not of the Toronto Blue Jays, if anything to say about it, though. On the other side of the coin, Josh Donaldson's hitting 500 through the playoff. Encarnacion has three home runs. What can what we all know is a depleted Cleveland Indians pitching rotation do to stop particularly those two players? Uh, not leave fastballs up in the zone. Uh, if you're a Toronto Blue Jays fan, you know that, that they live and die by the long ball. If you have guys one through five in the order, who they really do have a lot of power. I mean, you leave a fastball up in the zone to anyone across, you know, not only is he going to hit it out, he's going to hit it very far, probably out of progressive field in Cleveland. So, uh, you said Encarnacion and three home runs. Josh Donaldson is probably the best overall player in the entire series for both teams. Uh, and then Jose Bautista, you know what he's been able to do in the playoffs the last couple of years. They're a really talented team offensively. They strike out a lot. But the one thing that really separates the two teams between the Blue Jays and the Indians has to be the Blue Jays starting pitching. Yeah, although they are young, and I really like Aaron Sanchez, and I really like Marcus Stroman, they just don't match up. Corey Kluber, by far the best pitcher uh, in the entire series between the two teams, and the Indians' rotation is that much better than the Toronto Blue Jays, with all due respect to J.A. Happ and the year that he had. It's just really not that much of a comparison. So I think the Indians, the way that they run the bases, they play small ball, and they do have uh, some studs at the top of the order with Lindor, with Kipnis. Uh, I think they're going to take that series. That's just my opinion. Uh, Alex, the I did read an article during the week, and it was it was just really posing a vague question about Terry Francona, and is he a Hall of Fame manager? I'm just wondering if the the input that he's had, of course, coming from Boston, winning a couple of World Series there, rebuilt rebuilt that team and got rid of the curse of the Bambino and all that garbage but he's now moved on to Cleveland and he really seems to have done a terrific job there. Where do you see Terry Francona as playing a part of all of this? I think it's very simple. Uh, I don't think managers at this point in Major League Baseball are tacticians. They manage egos and I think everybody at this point, if you're a big league manager, you know how to double switch. Uh, you know how to methodically put together your lineup situation, your righties versus lefties, power versus average, OPS versus OPP. You're able to do that. Uh, it's the guys that are able to get the most out of their talent and make sure their talent is happy and, and playing the right way and has the right mindset going into the playoffs. You're managing egos. You're managing personalities. And I think Terry Francona by far is the best manager in baseball in doing that. So uh, you were talking about reading the article of Terry Francona, a Hall of Fame manager. I think it's very simple. If they go to the World Series, and especially if they win the World Series, that solidifies the reputation, not just being a manager of you know, one of the most talented teams in baseball history with those mid-2000s Boston Red Sox teams. And you can win two World Series like that. If you can win with this Indians team flying under the radar for six months out of the year, then you're a Hall of Fame manager. So I think Tito is one of the best in the game, and 
what he's done this year has solidified that. And if he can get himself a World Series ring, another one, uh, this time with the Indians, it's going to be pretty tough to deny from the Hall of Fame. You talk about egos, Alex, and that seems like the perfect time to make the switch to the National League. We've seen yesterday that the Dodgers beat the Nationals for the right to play the Cubs in the NLCS. What do you see happening in that series? Well, well, first of all, how fun was that Nationals-Dodgers game? There's some people that say baseball could be a dying sport. I'm not on the belief of that, but some people say it. That was a four-plus-hour game, and people were on the edge of their seats. Clayton Kershaw coming in, you know, ninth inning and closing out the game. You couldn't write a script better than that. I mean, I don't care if you're a baseball fan. If you don't like watching that, you're not a sports fan. So that, that was so enjoyable to watch and listen to. But if there's one team that could match up with the Chicago Cubs uh, in a series like this, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers. One, they've been there before. Two, they have the best pitcher on the planet on their team. And three, they have young players who are just cocky and just ignorant enough not to care about the Chicago Cubs winning 100-plus games, being the front runner in the National League. Uh, you look at this Dodgers roster, you have a great mix of young talent. Uh, Yasiel Puig's finally starting to play to his capability. Jock Peterson had a huge playoff series. And then you have some experienced players. Howie Kendrick's been there before. You get a couple guys from the Philadelphia Phillies, Carlos Ruiz, Chase Utley with the big hit. They've been there before. The one question mark with the Dodgers, can their bullpen stick together? I mean, that they've been on the edge of their seat all season long with their bullpen. Kenley Jansen, uh, one of the best relief appearances we've seen in the playoffs for quite some time, but he threw over 50 pitches. He might not even be available in game one. And then you don't have Clayton Kershaw until game three. If you're the Dodgers when it comes to that series, you're going to have to go up to Wrigley, and you're going to have to take at least one of the first two games of the series to have a chance. I'm not sure if they can do that. Going to the Cubs for a second, I said last week on the show that I thought the Giants were the team most likely to beat the Cubs from the National League. Now, looking at that series, on paper, 3-1 to Chicago, pretty standard, but every game in that series was a close game. The Cubs pulled through because we've... Both sides have players that can play in the clutch. We saw the Cubs players doing what they've been doing all year. How did you see that series? With the Cubs, I thought it was a lot closer than a 3-1 to series, as you said, especially in Game 4. Cubs had no business winning that game. Absolutely. If the Giants, they don't throw five relievers, or if one of them gets the job done, you're talking about a possible Game 5 of the Giants. They won three World Series in six years. That's a game they could have easily won. Now, with the Chicago Cubs, they're a very top-heavy team, and what I mean by that is they have one premier closer in a role as Chapman. Their starting rotation is great with Jake Arrieta, John Lester, Kyle Hendricks, John Lackey. And then if you look at the top of their lineup, uh, they have two probable MVP guys, one who likely will win the MVP in Chris Bryant, and another who may win an MVP or two down the road in Anthony Rizzo. I think they're a team that strikes out a lot, and that bodes well for these Los Angeles Dodgers pitchers, especially Clayton Kershaw, who K's for nine over his career is the best at all of baseball when it comes to starting pitching. So uh, this is a young Chicago Cubs team. Remember, if you look around their lineup, they, they rarely have guys who are over 27 years old. Anthony Rizzo, he's 27. Javier Baez, he's 23. Uh, Addison Russell, he's 22. So they're young. There, there's a possibility. I'm not saying it's a probability, but there's a possibility they could get nervous under all the lights and all the, uh, the, the microscope underneath them. You know, being the team who 
it was projected to win the World Series when the season started. You have an experienced team like the Dodgers, just two big major media markets, two major baseball fan bases. It's going to be a fun series. I think the Cubs will take it just the way that their starting pitching lays out. You have John Lester, who's been one of the best pitchers in all of baseball over the last two months since the All-Star break. Then you have Kyle Hendricks, if he is healthy. Uh, and, and then you have the reigning NL Cy Young Award pitcher in, in Jake Arrieta in Game 3. So it really lays out for them well. That being said, anything can happen in baseball. And if the Dodgers can win one of the two games, especially Game 1 in Chicago, then they have a real chance. I'm going to preface this question just with a an analogy to start with. Yesterday's game, the seventh inning in particular, went over one hour, just the one inning of baseball. I do know this year, yourself with the Bowling Green Hot Rods, you you called one inning that went over an hour, around the 65 to 70 minute mark, just for one inning. Yeah. On uh, Rob Manfred, the Commissioner of Baseball this year, on the table he's put his interest in exploring relief pitching and or, and or limiting slash minimising relief pitching in Major League Baseball. I know over the last couple of years they've now brought in the shot clock, uh, a pitch clock, sorry, in minor league yeah. baseball. With Manfred's idea about maybe limiting relief pitching, do you see that that has any merit and could it improve the game or would it hinder the game? You know, it's great to talk about that. I, I always appreciate people talk about trying to better the game of baseball, but you don't want to take out of what made baseball so great, and that is the unpredictable. Uh, and just being able to watch the Nationals and the Dodgers game using five relievers, or, or excuse me, the Giants and the Cubs game using five relievers, that's part of the strategy. That's baseball, and, and that's why baseball doesn't have a shot clock. There's no you know 12-hour quarters pass. That, that's what makes baseball so unique. So it's great to talk about it and brainstorm about better ideas that can get fans more involved. And I know that it's difficult to focus through a four-hour game or a three-hour and 50-minute game or a 66-minute inning, but if you look at Washington last night with that 60-plus-minute inning, nobody cared. They were standing up the entire time, and I know that it was the playoffs, but I really think that's what makes baseball so great. It's the unpredictable and and being able to have a six-minute inning and then a 60-minute inning. So I don't think it carries any merit. I still think the baseball purists are out there, and they'll rule in favor of uh, baseball being a spontaneous sport. And if that means 66-minute innings, then so be it. Another unpredictable storyline we've seen unfold over the last, I'd say, six to eight weeks is a man by the name of Tim Tebow, who has always, during his sporting career, professional (laughs) or otherwise, got a lot of media attention for the things he does and the things he says. Now... Your job is as a media director for a minor league baseball team. I want you to put your media director hat on at the moment. Imagine you're in Bowling Green next year and Tim Tebow ends up in Bowling Green. Tell us how different that would make your job. Well, uh, instead of having three press members at a game, there'll be 30 for that series. And instead of having 3,000 fans, you might have 9,000 with 3,000 standing room only. He brings fans to the game. Um, at this point, I got over the initial shock of you know, a guy who hasn't played competitive baseball in 11 years getting $100,000 and playing minor league baseball. Um, 
I'm over that. I, you understand that minor league baseball is a business. Tim Tebow is a businessman, and the New York Mets are business people. So signing in is a business decision. It can't possibly be on baseball. The guy's a great athlete. I understand that. But he hasn't played baseball in 11 years. There's no sample size. He didn't even play high school baseball. He had to drop out because of football. Uh, he played his junior year. He was projected to be an all-state player, but it, it, it was purely a business decision. Now, at this point with Tim Tebow, I think baseball, the game itself, is going to sort him out. If he can play, he'll play. If he can't, he's not going to play. So uh, he's going to the Arizona Fall League right now. You can see a spike in attendance for them. Um, and then this year, if he goes to the minor leagues, if he succeeds, it's great for him. But if he doesn't, it's great for the business of minor league baseball. I can guarantee you that whatever league that Tim Tebow goes to, they will receive a spike in attendance and a spike in media coverage. So for the business of minor league baseball, it's great. And for the actual you know, moral value of you know giving a player $100,000 has to play baseball in 11 years uh, to play baseball, I'm over that at this point. Baseball will sort it out. If he's good, he'll play. If he's not, he won't. Alex, we're getting uh, just about to run out of time here, so it's time for your predictions, of course. The American League Championship Series tomorrow. Estrada for Toronto will be going up against Kluber for the Indians. How do you see that series panning out, and who do you think will win that American League Championship Series? I, I think Cleveland wins that game. Well, Marco Estrada's been great all year, but uh, there's a huge difference between Marco Estrada uh, against the Cleveland Indians and, and Corey Kluber, a, a former Cy Young award-winning pitcher for the American League um, against the Toronto Blue Jays, a team that strikes out a lot in a very hot and cold offense. I, I think Cleveland wins that series in five, uh, so I do think that Cleveland will win game one of that series and, and vice versa with the Chicago Cubs uh, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, I think that series goes five as well, uh, and I think the Cubs win that. So I think it will be a Cubs-Indians World Series. Hopefully we can see another Major League remake and without Charlie Sheen, which would be even better. So. Yeah, we want to see Wild Thing back on the hill, absolutely. Mate, um, really, especially with that haircut. Yeah, um, really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, extensive as always, and um, thanks very much. Hopefully we'll get to hear your tones again with the Bowling Green Hot Rods next year. You did a terrific job with them this year. But uh, really appreciate your time this morning, mate. And uh, good luck, and we'll speak Guys, to you soon. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Alex Cohen there, media relations for the Bowling Green Hot Rods this year to, uh, was their play-by-play guy, did a terrific job. And just before we go to the break, where uh, Clubby's been revving me up here to go to a break, we've got a little bit of audio we want you to listen to here and see if this jogs your memory in any way at all. Reaching into the stands and couldn't get it, and he's livid with a fan. That's awfully close to fan interference right there. Uh, this is Liam Hendricks from the Oakland Athletics, and you're listening to SEN Baseball. And welcome back to SEN Baseball, the audio we just played there. Maybe some would remember, some wouldn't remember. X, do oh. you remember that piece of audio? Oh, I do indeed. It is one of my favorite pieces of audio, but not a favorite because of the way things unfolded, but... Unlike you, I am a man who believes in sporting curses. I believe I heard you when we were chatting with Alex Cohen refer to the curse of the Bambino as garbage. Yeah. No, you're wrong. It's not garbage. It is not garbage. It was a very real thing. Where is it now? Dead. What what T-shirts is Bill Murray selling right now? I ain't afraid of no goats. 
no goat because it's just it's it, it you're messing with your own head and just for those in case see if you did get it or didn't get it of course the audio we did just reference a moment ago before the break was Steve Bartman reaching into uh, the foul ball with Moises Alou out there in left field, which caused all sorts of drama, has caused Bartman to go into hibernation, has caused documentaries, and I firmly believe if the Cubs get through to the World Series, Steve Bartman will reappear. I believe he will be at a at least one World Series game, probably more. All is forgiven once the Cubs win a World Series. But yes. he will go back into Wrigley Field. It will be fine. It was 13 years ago today. Time passes. Guess what? The Cubs were pretty average for the 95 years before that happened as well. Exactly. 108 years now without a World Series. We've seen a lot of sporting droughts broken this year. The most recent one we saw the Western Bulldogs win the AFL Grand Final. Absolute euphoric scenes on field afterwards. Yeah. I was down at Witten Oval about 45 minutes after the game finished. Amazing. Some of the best atmosphere I've ever seen. I can't imagine what the atmosphere is like in Chicago now. But when I think about Bartman, I think about, if I'm a Cubs fan, does hearing that make me nervous? And absolutely it does. Because when that's in your head, you talk about it, it's very much a mindset thing, and you know that that's happening, you're always worried it's going to happen again. You're strangely superstitious, X. I I don't know why, but you're right about it. I think there's something about getting rid of all of these curses. I'm just using, you know, air quotes. Yep, your air quotes are out... With, it, with this curse's word, but Leicester City, Western Bulldogs. Um, Cleveland Cavaliers breaking a 50-year title drought in the city. Cavaliers. Cronulla Sharks winning their first NRL title. There is something Cronulla in the Sharks. air this year. Dare I throw in the Danny Nong Angels from the winter... There we go. 1964. That's that's a good one to break. Speaking of 1964, hopefully the Melbourne Football Club can get on this wagon next year. And then the police turn up to the Danny Nong Angels after game celebrations and arrest a couple of blokes. But that's true. (laughs) It's a fact. It's a fact. But let's throw in the Cubs. You're saying that it's time to clean up the goat. I think it absolutely is. Why why can't it be the Cleveland Indians? Haven't been in a World Series in 1948, I believe it is. Um, So uh, it's just an era where maybe some of these curses or, or... Things we'll call them is, is just time to get cleaned up. So, right now it's uh, the two main ones are the Cubs and the Indians. But you know we'll just have to wait and see. But as you said, thirteen years to the day where Steve Bartman actually the interference play of that ball in the outfield and hopefully can all get cleared up for the Chicago Cubs. Speaking of things being cleared up, and this is a nice little segue to move closer to home and the Australian Baseball League, I believe that this is the year we are going to see the longest drought in the ABL broken. The Melbourne Aces will win an away series. Well, just to straighten you up a little bit, in the old ABL, Melbourne was the most dominant city in the in the competition. Correct. Many of my childhood nights were spent at Waverley and Moorabbin. Might have even seen you play on a few occasions. Maybe, but the karma's uh, one of those things can uh, really even things out. Melbourne was a dominant state back in the first incarnation of the ABL. This ABL around they can't win a meat raffle no They've been very very ordinary uh there is some moves afoot to actually change that of course there's been some recruiting of players um and i'll just go through the names that have been signed and set for particular teams right now from the adelaide bite angus roger steve chambers stefan welsh connor o'gorman mitch denning 
Nick Hutchins and Jack O'Loughlin. Jack O'Loughlin's the name that uh, the schoolboys manager Pete Giles mentioned earlier in the show, signed with the Pittsburgh, um, with the Detroit Tigers, sorry, uh, earlier on, left-hander, but he's signed to pitch this year with the Adelaide Bite. It will be Br- interesting to see him make the jump to that next level, even even domestically, before he goes overseas. Absolutely. Um, the Brisbane Band, it's got Logan Wade, Justin Erasmus, Andrew Campbell, Reese Nitt, uh, Mitch Nilsson, Sam Holland, Ryan Battaglia, Matt Timms, David Sutherland, Aaron Whitfield, James Albury, Ryan Seattle, Connor McDonald, Daniel Nilsson, another one coming along, and Nathan Haas is a catcher. Canberra Cavalry have David Candelis, Boss Monaroa, and Aaron Sayers, a Victorian who played up there last year. Aaron Sayers, a middle infielder. The Melbourne Aces, Brad Harmon, Daryl George, Pete Moylan, Mike Walker, Josh Davies, Shane Lindsay, Alan DeSan Miguel, uh, Dushan Ruzik, Liam Bedford, Ronald Asuna is a new import they've just um, named this week, along with Cody Jones and, for some reason, Josh Tolls, who we did mention last week. His name is not on the list as yet. Josh Tolls, Melbourne Aces. Now, I just want to pull you up on something there, Freddie. You made one crucial mistake in that last little yep. spiel. Yep. You've uh, got one of the team names wrong. What you're actually looking for instead of the Melbourne Aces is Team Australia. That's basically what we're looking at in Melbourne this year. The yep. John Deeble effect means we are seeing Team Australia, or the vast majority of them, playing together in readiness for the WBC next year. Yes, Poss- At- possibly. Now, Possibly. a few other names that have come up across the journey. Sydney Blue Sox, we've, uh, there's only the three. They haven't even named a manager yet. I know people in Sydney are looking to find out who's going to be uh, steering the ship. But Josh Dean, Craig Anderson and Trent D'Antonio are the three names that have been put out by the Sydney Blue Sox. As I said, no manager at this particular point. And on the flip side of all of that, Perth Heat have named a manager, but no players right now. They have named Matt Canelli of the famous Canelli family over in Perth to be the head manager. And you have a bit of a theory about this of Matt Canelli managing the Perth Heat this year. The Perth Heat appear to have a two-year managerial cycle. Once you've had the job for two years, you move on, they get fresh blood in, things don't go stale. Nice, fresh perspectives every year. What we're looking at here is a guy who's just been released, had a very solid professional career, starting his managerial career, and he's, he already knows he's got two years on the clock. I don't think that's fair. He might be the breath of fresh air that we need or that Western Australia need for their managerial spike, I guess, yeah. for someone who could do it for a longer period. He's long been involved with baseball in WA, obviously the first family of baseball in WA. I just think that having him for two years is already limiting what he can do. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm at a guess. Uh, he was just released this season from Atlanta. Um, I, I'm presuming he'll be a playing manager. So, how do you see it as limiting what he can do? I don't. We, for, firstly, I'll just premise it by saying we haven't seen him manage even an under twelve team. No. So we don't even know if he can manage. No. And my first point is, I don't think he'll be a playing manager. I think he'll suit up, he'll focus on that, and I think that's probably the right move. But I think, let's say Perth go out there, they win the next two titles. He's coming along, he's doing great, he could be on the fast track to be the next Team Australia manager. We don't know. All hypotheticals. Then after two years, oh, cheers for the service, mate, off you go. We're actually 
that two-year cycle for me is stopping guys from actually forging a career as a manager. Yes, he'll have that two years of experience, but is that going to be enough that he can then take his managerial skills to the next level, or will he go back to managing club ball in Perth? You That's sort of, my question. You're slightly contradicted yourself, and I'm going to straighten you up on this Alrighty. one. You, you mentioned he'll be a non-playing manager. Yep. Now, in the breath before that, you said the World Baseball Classic is about to come up. Do you think Matt Canelli will not play this season and just manage with that carrot of the World Baseball Classic in March of next year. Just rent. You think Matt Canelli's given up on his Australian aspirations? All righty. Now, I know you've managed for a while at varying levels. At some really poor levels. Yeah, varying it's... levels is the word I'm looking for. Say you've never had any managerial experience. We'll flash back to your yep. illustrious career with the Waverley Reds. Yep. And you're offered the opportunity to manage. You've never done it before. Uh, yep, get that grin off your face. But you've never done it before. Are you going to take the opportunity to do something you don't know how to do? A job you're going to need to figure out how to do and invest a lot of time in and play at the same time, knowing it's probably to the detriment of your own team to do both? I don't know. Maybe my tinfoil hat's on a little too tight here. This bit too tight. You've wound it too tight this week. Um, you've, you're missing what Australian baseball is all about. Australian baseball is all about a bunch of mates who can do as they please. The the league, in my opinion, we have uh, we have lost Major League Baseball support in certain areas. The areas, uh, it's been refocused into certain things. The MLB Academy, there is a fresh new bunch of kids over in the US. Uh, they might have just returned also. Um, uh, an elite... This Arizona Fall Classic, is it called? It, it's, the money is being, is being directed exactly where a handful of people want it to go. The grassroots game of baseball in Australia is suffering enormously enormously and the elite level is um, I'm not going to say flourishing because it's not flourishing it's suffering as well but it's due to poor management all the way along and that leads me to the point of Brett Pickett the CEO of Baseball Australia has announced that he will be moving on why he needs to give us one more season I'll never know he puts down um, no I will not say that but MLB have have pulled their support of the Australian Baseball League and that is no longer. The last CEO we had left under a cloud when a huge amount of money went, went disappeared from Australian Baseball in the vicinity of $1.4 million and then the CEO left. Now we have lost Major League Baseball. The CEO is leaving also. Why we need to get a, a send-off, a David Ortiz-type year to... Uh, I just don't understand. We just move along right now. Um, but to me, it raises more questions than answers, as it usually does, is who will take over uh, as the CEO of Baseball Australia that is to me a huge question and uh, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if the game in this country is recoverable I really don't know I'm going to pose a question as well it's not necessarily a question you need to answer if you don't feel that you should this is a question in general are the Australian baseball league franchises and potentially the ABL as a whole yep 
placing too much focus during the ABL offseason on promoting the general Major League Baseball action. I understand there are some outstanding things that would go without saying that, yes, you would promote. However, we're now six seasons deep into the ABL. We've got a lot of players who are playing in the minors, playing in the majors, playing in Europe. For me, for those franchises, there is your content between February and November. You can do a lot of good stuff very easily just with your former players. Six years' worth of players is a lot of players. Australians, imports, Europeans, guys who have gone on to manage, even guys playing at club level. Does there need to be more of a focus on that than promoting general Major League Baseball stuff? I understand that Australian Baseball League fans are also Major League Baseball fans. Yeah. But what's missing for me is there are Major League Baseball fans who aren't Australian Baseball League fans, and how do we get those people in? Do we get those people in by not promoting our local product? Just just throwing it out there. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of question, and it's one to me that has been repeated every off-season for the last six since this league has been going. We really, uh, to me, aren't quite sure what we're doing if the truth be told, and and that is part of the reason why we've lost the MLB support is because they realise we weren't really competent at what was going on here in Australia, and the proof is in the pudding. Um, the We've lost MLB support. Some are saying that that's a good thing, and some are using it, saying that they negotiated their way out of an MLB deal and we can now stand on our own two feet and watch us go. Truth is, we needed MLB support all the way along. Uh, Unfortunately, now we don't have it. I have stated before that the first ABL lasted 10 years with local money, and it failed because it was just too expensive. We now came into this with MLB support, and was supposed to be a consistent, ongoing thing. Well, that lasted six seasons, and they pulled the pin once they sort of looked closely at the way things were run here. Um, but where where we're going to go in the future, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, I think uh, right now there's a lot of people really battling hard to try and make this work. I'm just not exactly sure that that can happen. I'm going to throw a question at you without notice here about your experiences in this incarnation of the Australian Baseball League, which is both you and I have had the pleasure of broadcasting games of this incarnation of the ABL. Does it sadden you looking at where the league could end up, comparing it to where it could have ended up if things were different? Bit of a sliding doors question. Could end up, could have ended up. Um, so when you look at the positive projection it could have gone on if all goes right with MLB and they yeah. pour in more and more money, yeah. and we look at the potentially, geez, if it's mismanaged, where could it end up? I'm not saying it will be mismanaged, but if it is. I will say it's already mismanaged. Okay. It's already happened. Six it, seasons and we've lost MLB support. That's what I'm sort of saying. The, you lose MLB support, we have mismanaged. Personally, does it sadden you seeing the state of the league as it stands? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely it does. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And, and there are people, and I'm even going to be smarty pants here, there are people who think they're smarter than everybody else and they think they can do better. Well, the truth is not all of them can do better and and some have failed miserably. So where it goes from here, I don't know. They will continue to sell it as an Australian Baseball League, 
But what they do need is a lot of money to make all of this happen. Um, where all that money comes from, I don't know now. They are after some rich benefactors that are going to, you know, carry this game. Well, good luck in trying to find that. They were supposed to be announced by now. It was supposed to be five seasons and then some wealthy uh, people to take over. Well, that may have well happened, but they're not telling us. No, they're, they're not. not. What they are telling us is about a uh, an import that had 10 at-bats here once and, and, you know, got a free all-star hat and we're never going to see again. They're, they are telling you about him, but they're not talking about the local Australian content. Yeah, which, that, is where the, which is where the downfall is for me. Now, we don't have long left today, but I'm just going to pose some general thoughts. We're sitting in the studio. We're very lucky to be able to do this. And on one of the TVs in the studio at the moment is a replay of an NBL game from last night. And that spreads. That brings to mind for me, I look at where the NBL was two to three years ago, almost dead, almost in a similar position to what the ABL is now. Yeah. Looking at what they have turned themselves into, there are sellout crowds, there is a great TV deal with Fox, there is great merchandise sales, there is great revenue, there is great potential, there is a great quality of player in the league can the ABL somehow, and I'm not asking for a solution, I'm looking for a yes or no answer. Yeah. Can the ABL somehow find the the white knight, the business genius that the NBL found and turn themselves into something like what we now see in the NBL? I'm not sure of his name, but the guy that owns the Melbourne United, I think he's... Larry the... Seng... Oh, what's his name? I don't know. It, it might, might come to you. We'll see. But it, Kesselman, it, perhaps? There's one, one guy in particular that's really put his... Uh, things on the line, yep. put it on the line to, to make all of this happen, and that's t- tremendous for him. I'm not sure if we have the same sort of people in baseball, but it's not not just the somebody with deep pockets. No, it's not. Somebody needs to manage this whole thing, Yep. and I'm not exactly sure that we're, we're getting the right people in positions. And just going back to the start of this whole conversation, as I mentioned, the CEO of Baseball Australia, Brett Pickett, out. Um and to me, the big question comes from who takes over, what their motives are, and where they where they want this uh, thing to go, what their plan is for the future. Because we desperately need somebody that that can take this game somewhere. Right now, I'm not sure. I think we're a rudderless ship, the way I look at it right now. So I'm not exactly sure of where uh, where this game's going to go. But we'll have to wait and see. Um, look. That's uh, that's enough of that babbling on. We're, we're going to uh, end the show right here. Thanks, um, X, for coming in today. Appreciate your time. Pleasure as always. One last one, just that a message has come through while we're doing the show. Just keep an eye out for Jeremy Guthrie this year in the Australian Baseball League. Just keep an eye out for that name. Pitched in the World Series two years ago. The Kansas City Royals. So just keep an eye out for the name Jeremy Guthrie this particular season. That's all we have for right now anyway. Thanks to your good self, X, for coming on in. And uh, to all those concerned, thanks to Pete Giles, manager of the Australian schoolboys team, did a great job over in the US. And for our SEN America correspondent, Alex Cohen, talking all things playoff. That's all we have for today. You're listening to SEN Baseball. Thanks for listening to the SEN MLB podcast. For more SEN America podcasts, head to sen.com.au. To keep up to date with the latest American sports news and interviews from around SEN, follow SEN America on Twitter at SEN America and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SEN America.